May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A little, a uh, few months ago, I'm not sure exactly, I have to ask Jack and Donna to remind me how long it's been now. Uh, we, were, we were preparing for their wedding, on a, um, must have been on a Friday night, and uh, went out to dinner at this um, restaurant up in Twinsburg. And um, we were there and, and uh, had this great meal, so there was, you know, good time and good food and good wine, all that stuff. And then, and then at the end, after all of that, they asked me what I would like for dessert. And, um, and they had on this uh, dessert menu this item called a chocolate bomb. Have you ever had a chocolate bomb? Oh, my word. Okay, so I like chocolate. And I probably like bombs. So, um, you know, how bad could it be, right? And so they, they brought it to me. And it was Unbelievable. If you ever go to the Blue Canyon and they have the chocolate bomb, you must, you must get that, okay? But here's the thing, is it was so good and so rich, and I'd already had way too much to eat, that while my mouth was saying, give me more, my stomach was saying, please, no, I can't take it. You know, um, I listened to my mouth, because who wants to listen to the stomach, right? And, and so, oh, I, was, I left so full so satisfied um but in a way you know like i i knew that perhaps i had had too much too much chocolate i mean i don't know if you can really have too much but i got real close to the edge of that too i say that because as i was working through saint paul's letter to the colossians this passage that's before us today chapter one uh, verses 11 to 20 I sort of remember that chocolate bomb you know this is sort of what paul gives us he gives us this great dessert, this unbelievable vision of the church and of Jesus and who he is. And it's so dense and rich and good that if we dug into it all, <laughs> by the end of the day, you'd be like, no, I think we've reached it. We ha- the saturation point is there, or at least we would be close to it. And yet... Um, I just don't know where to stop in this thing either because to, to, to touch on it doesn't do justice to this very important um, this vision that Paul is giving us. I want you to remember, as I guess I'm telling you this is a way of preface, if at the end you say, stop, no more, I'll be like, see, I told you. Um, but Paul writes this letter from prison. He doesn't write it from, you know, the sunny confines of a, you know, a well warmed beach um, he's, he's not drinking a, a little fruity drink with an umbrella you know as he's laid back in his, um, his recliner he's in prison I mean perhaps a, a house arrest chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day but the Apostle Paul St. Paul writes this letter from prison under armed guard in fear for his life in fact perhaps by the time he writes this letter he's certain that he's not going to live much longer. The end is near for him, and he knows this. And so when he writes this letter, you can't imagine that Paul is just, you know, kick back and, uh, you know, think he's got his big stack of books perhaps there, you know, and he's, he's kind of been uh, ruminating on uh, theological abstractions. It's not like that at all. He rather is writing to a church that he knows is young, fragile in its faith, um, vulnerable, 
under severe persecution, both from Jews and from Gentiles. And he wants to encourage them along the way. And so I want you to see two things. I want you to see Paul's vision first for the church and then his vision of Christ. So first for the church, look at verse 11. And and even before we get there, just listen. Two verses before, I don't know why the the lectionary sometimes does this, but it it picks up right in the middle of the prayer. Um, I thought about adding it, but I thought maybe it would be good just to hear too. Verse 9 of of chapter 1, Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That is, we, those who are in prison, Paul and his companions, praying for you, the church in Colossae, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul says, I want you to be, I want you to have in your mind a knowledge of the will of God. I want you to be filled with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, right? This, this sort of synonymous, uh, holistic approach. I want you to know in your very bones. That's how we would say it, wouldn't we? You, you know how like somebody says to you, maybe your kids have said to you, you know, mom or dad, how'd you know when you were in love, you know? And you say, because I knew, you know? Um, Joe, how did you know you should take another bite of that chocolate bomb? Because I just knew I should, right? Sometimes there is, there is a level of knowledge, an epistemological understanding. There is a depth of knowledge that goes beyond facts and figures. Paul is saying that church in Colossae, and I think he says by implication, church in Hudson. I want you to know. I want you to know in your very bones the will of God. I want you to have your mind kind of wrapped around that so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk, he doesn't mean literally walk, right? You can talk the talk, but can you... Walk the walk. There you go. Yeah, we don't mean walk. We mean is your lifestyle in accordance with what you say. Paul says, I want you to have the will of God, so entrenched in your mind that your life will reflect the will of God and be fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And then he picks up with our text. So if you have your bulletin, look with me at the very first verse there, verse 11. This is a continuation then of the prayer. Notice the second thing. First thing, knowledge of the the will of God. Second thing he prays for, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. May you be filled with all... May, may, excuse me. May you um, be strengthened with all power. Strengthened with all power. In, in, in Paul's original, the word dunamis, um, from which we get the word dynamite, is, is used twice here. Strengthened is dunamis. It is the, the participial form of that. May you be strengthened by strengthening um, with all power. Dunamis, dunamis, it's double. Okay, a a little linguistic and and a little uh, convoluted, I know. But this, may you be powerful with all of God's power. And all of His, notice a third time, strength. This would be praying for, that you would be powerful. Uh, um, Benjamin will tell you, Dietrich, about wrestling season all geared up. Um, everybody's doing two things. They're working really hard, building strength. 
and they're working really hard not eating anything <laughs> at the same time. And so it's this combination of, of bringing your weight down, getting rid of all excess weight, particularly any fat that's left, get rid of that and build nothing but muscle. So that you have, this is Paul's vision. I think he might have been a wrestler. That you would have all of this power. Not just from working out, but that God would just pour it into you. Imagine that, um, like, like a superhero. You remember when Spider-Man gets bit by a spider, you know, and all of a sudden he becomes this powerful person. This is the image that God would give to you, the church, this power that would strengthen you. Why? Because he wants you to be able to run marathons? No, he probably would like that, but that's not the reason why. Because he wants you to win in wrestling matches or in other sporting events? No. It'd be nice, but that's not the reason why. Why does he give you power and strength? Well, you're way ahead of me. I know this. For all endurance and patience. So that you can last. And not just that you can last. Notice how you're going to endure. With joy. That your endurance would would continue and that you would be joyful in the endurance. Remember, this is written from prison to people who are suffering. I want you to be strong. And I want you to be filled with all joy in the midst even of difficult times. Because you have to remember who you are. Now, who is the church? What is the church about? I mean, are we just a group of people who gather under an intellectual commonality? We all happen to think the same things. And, you know, isn't it nice that we all kind of come from the same whatever tradition? Uh, we all happen to be English or German if you're a Lutheran or, or whatever, Polish in, in church. No! The church does not gather around ethnicity. It does not gather around politics. It doesn't gather around... That was a little... Yeah. Um, it doesn't gather around any sort of specificity like that, not even nationality. What does the church gather around? Well, it gathers around Jesus Christ and the realization that He has done something for us. Verse 13. He has delivered us. Notice Paul includes himself in this, right? Us, first person plural. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Important to know. In Paul's thinking, and in your thinking it should be, every single person that has come into this world from the, from the time of, of Cain and Abel, not Adam and Eve, but every person since then has come into this world with a bent towards sin. A bent towards evil. I know those precious little babies and grandbabies and nieces and nephews and, and whoever else you look at them are so sweet and, and they're so nice and they grow up and they're not always so nice, but you know that they're, they're you look at this is a perfect child. And indeed there is this the seed of innocence still in them. But you know, you know in that child, no matter what environment you place him or her, there is also this inclination towards selfishness, towards wanton depravity, you know, to do, to do what is wrong. It doesn't take a child very long before they learn this word. I mean, the first word should be daddy. The second word, whatever, but like about the third or fourth, maybe fifth word, you know it, mine. 
It's mine. Where do they have this instinct, this impulse? Well, it comes from Adam and Eve, from the, our very first parents. We all are born with this inclination. St. Augustine calls it original sin. I had a professor who said, I believe in original sin, and I believe it's equally distributed. <laughs> and I, I think he's right. You know, that it doesn't matter. Everybody has it. We all have this, this inclination, and we are under a dominion of darkness because of that. That means that we grow up with it bent towards evil, and it doesn't get better. It gets worse. So much so that Satan, evil, has authority over us. Notice Paul's words, what he called it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Ekousia in Greek. The authority. We were under the authority by nature of evil. Now, that's a difficult thing to think. You know, you have to admit about yourself, oh, wow, I was born with this inclination. Yes, you were. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, let me talk to your parents. Okay, we, you were born with this. We all were. And we were under the authority of, of, of evil and Satan. And Paul says, Jesus has delivered us. And notice what he's done. He has transferred us. He has moved us from one into another. I mean, this is good news, right? We are no longer under the acousia, the authority of evil and Satan. We are under the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are under His authority. We have been transferred. Big, heavy theological word for this. It's called sanctification. It, it, it means to be made holy. Um, up there underneath the, the little covering on the top of the altar. You know what's under there, right? There is this silver chalice. I could go get coffee from the, the kitchen and bring it in here and pour it into that chalice and drink out of it, couldn't I? I mean, it, it could actually happen, right? It's a possibility nod if you're like, yes, I think that could happen. <laughs> no, it could. I could actually do this, but if I did it, what would happen? <gasps> you would gasp, right? That's not just any cup. Yes, it'll hold any liquid. But it is not just any cup. It is a holy vessel set apart for a special use. It is sanctified. That's the word you'd use. Sanctified. Another word that we have in English that, that comes from the same Greek root. It is consecrated. Been set apart. Here's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Set us apart. He has made us special. Hagioi, saints. He has made us saints. And you're like, no, Joe, I know you. You're no saint. <laughs> and I would say to you, I probably agree. And I know you. But here's the thing. Holiness is not about complete perfection. Saints are that we belong to God's people. We are sharers. Notice what he says in the light. Verse 12. Go back with me, will you? Giving thanks to the Father... Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? He has qualified you. You know, in, in all sorts of things, we qualify ourselves, right? Um, suppose you want to go to law school or med medical school or um, to seminary or wherever. You always have to take these exams, right? I had to take this exam for, to get into the doctoral program called a Miller Analogies Test. A hundred analogies. And you have to answer them as fast as you can. You have, you have 60 uh, minutes to go through this whole thing. 
and and they're difficult. I mean, sometimes they're really. And so you you you'll see these. You have to work them out. If you're in athletics, um, you have to uh, qualify to make certain tournaments. I mean, whatever it is, you understand that you have to qualify. How do you get into grad school? You show that you studied hard in undergrad. How do you get into college? You show that you studied hard in high school. Pay attention to that high schooler. Um, how did you? How do you get into uh, the, the the state tournament? What well, you had to work hard in the district and sectional or whatever else you're in. How do you? How do you make it as the first violinist? You have to beat the second violinist. I think that's right. How do you? How do you get to to wherever it is you want to go? You have to qualify. But here's the difference. In all of those things, you are performing that qualification. It's your ability. It's your ability to, to, to do well, to perform at a high level, to think well, to run well, to fight well, to play well, whatever it is. But here, it is what God has done for us. He has qualified you. He's done it for you to share in His in his inheritance in the saints. Real quickly, too. Inheritance. To get a share, a lot of the inheritance. This is actually a, a metaphor from, from land. Um, I'm reading this book on the, on the Mayflower. Um, what, what is this fellow's name? I can't remember now. But anyway, um, it, uh, it's almost there. He's talking about them going to the New World on the Mayflower. And, um, and he, uh, he, he says that, you know, that they have to get this patent so they can have certain land granted to them from the king. And they actually land in the wrong place. They, they end up up in New England where they have no patent to, to receive land. They have no inheritance in that land. No one has granted them and they just sort of take it. <laughs> they just sort of move in and, and make it their own. But you could imagine in a similar sense if you had a large piece of property and you left it to your children... They were given. This is what Paul is saying. You have been qualified to share in this inheritance. And it's not for the future. It's not about heaven. It's about right here, right now. That's who the church is. The church is these people who have been transformed, made different human beings because of the power of God, made into the image of God, and given and share in this inheritance. But who is Christ? Who can do this? The one who is fully divine. It's difficult for people to talk about the Trinity because it's impossible to get your mind around. If you think you fully understand the Trinity, meet me in my office afterward. I would love to be schooled on this. Because I have studied for years. I mean, years. And I'm not sure I get my mind all the way around it. I confess it every week. In fact, every day. And yet, I'm not sure that I altogether understand it. Because God is beyond human understanding. But I believe it. And and what I believe is that God is one. We believe in one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're like, Joe, that's three. Yeah, I know. But we believe in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son is fully God. Verse 15. Look with me, will you? He is the image, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the icon, the icon of the invisible God. Now, we would, they would use this in, in ancient world to talk about the image on a coin. You could imagine if I pulled out a coin, 
I'm not sure who's on the coins anymore. I haven't looked for so long. Oh, uh, on a penny. Um, a Lincoln on the penny. This is an aside. It costs you nothing. This is completely free. But have you noticed they changed the tail side of a penny? Bob, you're on this one. You've seen it. Yeah, they, but they changed the tail side. But on the head side is still an image of Lincoln. It is actually his likeness. They didn't say, Joe Boisel, would you sit for an image of Lincoln so he could put him on the penny? They didn't say this to anybody else. It's the image of Lincoln himself. And Jesus is the image of God. He is the very image of God. A a window into heaven, as the Greeks would say. He is the likeness of God. He is the creator God. And I know that this is a bit confusing, but he is the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn does not mean that he was birthed. It means that he is the very preeminent one. It would be like saying, He is the best. He is the very chief person of all creation. The highest, the most important of all. And then notice, verse 16. If I can see it. For by Him all things were created. A Jew would never say that anyone other than God created anything. Right? Paul, a Jew, writing to the Colossians, said... Jesus is the creator. He created all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. How many things? All things were created by him and through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Over and over and over again. I counted in Greek eight times the word all is used. And I should have counted how many times the the, the neuter uh, um, pronoun uh, ta. uh, How many times all things were used. All, all, all. How much is he responsible for? All of it. And therefore he is fully in control. Now, I think that maybe you've raced ahead of me. If he's in control of all things, and he created all things, and he's over all things, even dominions and powers and rulers and authorities, Paul is writing this while he sits in a Roman prison under the authority of Nero. What about all this, Paul? What about the Roman government? What about all the pain we see in the world? What about evil people? What about natural disasters? If He's over all things, isn't He over all of those as well? And Paul says, yes, He is. He's over all of that. Well, then why is there so much pain in the world? I think Paul's answer to that would be, because He's not yet finished with us. Because in the plan of God, He's not yet finished with us, evil must still continue to be present as well. Its end is in sight, verse 20. Through him he plans to reconcile to himself all things. That Jesus is going to reconcile all things. That means all people, all thrones, all dominions, all forces in the world. And he is going to, look at this, make peace by the blood of the cross. Whatever problem there is in the world... I think Paul's answer is this. Christ is the solution. 
He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the first and He's the last. And if you're somewhere in the middle and you don't know what's going on, I think Paul said, look at the end. I'll tell you what's going to happen at the end. It's confusing now. It's uncertain. But reconciliation and peace, that's where we're going. Uh, there's a story about uh, John Wesley. He was a, um, an Anglican priest in the 18th century. Rode um, more than 300,000 miles on horseback around England. England's not a very big country. It's, it's only slightly bigger than the state of Ohio. Could you imagine traveling 300,000 miles around Ohio on horseback? Well, this is what Wesley did. And he traveled around and, and, and preached the gospel. And, and many, many people came to faith in Jesus because of what he did. But one day he was traveling on horseback and he was with a friend. And they were out going through the countryside. And his friend was bemoaning his many uh, problems and difficulties. And Wesley listened to him for some time. But he was not a patient man, this John Wesley. He was always busy, always in a hurry, always busy about doing something. And so he eventually says to the man, he says, Do you see that cow out there in the field? And there's a cow who's coming up to a stone fence. And the cow's looking over top the stone fence. And the man says, Yeah, I see him. And Wesley says to him, Why do you suppose the cow is looking over the fence? And the man says, I have no idea why the cow is looking over the fence. And Wesley said, because he can't see through it. Sometimes you can't see through your problems. Sometimes you can't see through the difficulties. Sometimes you can't see through the pain. You have to look over it. And we gather together today, on the last Sunday of the liturgical year, Christ the King Sunday, and we're reminded that if we look over, instead of through, we'll see that in the end, he will reign forever and ever. We don't know what it is like to have a king. We've, none of us have ever, I don't think, ever lived on, uh, maybe one person, no, even they're not a king, it was a queen. Okay, we don't know much about a king, right? Well, the only kings we know are Burger Kings, right? And we don't know anything about kings, King James, you know, uh, the, uh, the basketball player. We kind of metaphor, you know, uh, loosely. Even the English monarchy is not a monarchy of power. It's a monarchy of wealth. Jesus is the king of kings. To whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. But that's what we look at in the end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.